You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Amen. Take your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Again, thank you for those words to Connor. Hannah is actually in uh, the airport right now, about to head to Leeds, England, where she will spend the next four weeks working with uh, on-the-field missionaries. And so this week she trained in Kansas City. Part of her training was just to learn how to use public transportation. I might be thinking Kansas City for that, I don't know, but, but she did all kind of buses and taxis and went to all kind of different shops and different things, and uh, she's had a good week. And so thank you for praying for her and continue to pray for her during this time. So Ephesians chapter 4, we're continuing our series looking at Ephesians, what a gospel-centered church is. Uh, and this morning we're, we're turning the corner, right? We've been studying theology for weeks now, looking in chapters 1 to 3, developing who we are in Christ and what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a believer, what all that Jesus has done for us and what is the role of the church uh, in God's plan, overall plan for the world. Now we're shifting to where Paul's going to, I mean, just challenge us. In fact, uh, he's going to get up in our business. Is, that, that's the best way I could say it, right? He's going to get up into some of the things that you, you don't normally invite people to talk about these things, but he's going to get up in there, and he's going to challenge you based on the fact that Jesus has done this great work for us, that he has brought us together. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, he says, Therefore, so based on all three chapters, that's what the word therefore means. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, or prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all in all, sorry, above all, through all, and in all. And so Paul calls us to, to unity, doesn't he? And this whole chapter is going to talk about our unity, our diversity, and, and how God has put us together, and then how we should then walk forward in purity together as a congregation, as a local church of Christ. And so but I want to start off this morning by just telling a story. So in seminary, I had a professor, his name was uh, Randy Stinson. Uh, he was a Florida Gator fan, so I remember his name better than others. Um, but uh, I remember taking him for a, a family class. It was just family ministry class. And he told the story of his family. And they had three biological children and then just felt compelled of the Lord to start adopting. And actually, they have eight kids now, three uh, biological, five adopted. But their first adoption experience was just really crazy. And a lot of times when you talk to people who have adopted, sometimes they have just crazy stories. In this particular case, uh, they felt compelled to adopt two girls from Taiwan. And so they went with different agencies and, and whatnot to find these girls. And uh, it was just a different experience. When they got over there, there wasn't like this big celebration or anything like that. They, they, they went to a very shady orphanage. They were given a bag of clothes that didn't fit and a bag of medications that didn't match, and said these were for the girls. These are all their belongings, all that they had. And they brought them from Taiwan all the way back to Louisville, Kentucky in America. Right? And so there were some radical things that those girls went through. Right? 
in, in an instance, literally their identity changed, right? They went from being orphans to literally moving from home to home to home to home or orphanage, 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 being medicated, like just being malnourished, all this stuff to now they, they live in Louisville, Kentucky. They are Stinsons adopted into their family. But you know what? It took a while for them to walk in that new identity. In fact, he told the story of how uh, the, the first couple times they went into the room just to check up on them and see how they're doing, it smelled. It smelled in the room. And they're like, why, why does it stink? Why does it smell? Well, they were so used to being malnourished and, and not knowing where they were going to live or where they were going that they, they just, it was a habit for them to, to take food from the dinner table and to hide it under their bed. But they wouldn't just hide it under the bed. They would be under the pillow, in the sheets, in the mattress, everywhere, because they just didn't know, right? That's all they ever knew was that we don't know where our next meal may come from. We better ration and, and take some food with us. And so he had to explain, no, listen, you are my daughters now. I love you. I'm going to provide for you. You have to walk in that love. Well, it, it, it takes time to do that, right? It takes time to grow into maturity. But you know what? Their father loved them. So they were able to slowly change from the identity that they had in the past to now being full, mature, just teenage girls, able to trust their parents and to walk in the newness of life that had been declared for them. And that's just a beautiful picture of what is going on in our lives, right? We have been adopted into God's kingdom, and now we are called to walk in that newness of life. And you know what? It's going to be a struggle. It's not going to be perfect, and it's not only going to be not perfect for me or for you, but for all of us. And so that's why Paul's going to urge us, listen, you have to maintain unity. You have to work at it. It's not going to happen just naturally. You have to maintain it. In fact, none of these things that are going to be commanded to us today happen to us naturally. All of them are things that we have to work towards. So Ephesians 4 just implores us to walk into the reality of what we have looked at in chapters one to three. What has been declared about our identity? The church is the essential plan of God, is essential to the plan of God to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, so that through the church, the wisdom of God should be made, made known throughout the world and even to the heavens. Therefore, it's essential that we live out the gospel as a united church. And as our hearts are transformed by the gospel, it moves us to walk in obedience to the Lord. And it testifies to his goodness and to his grace to a world that needs it. Our world right now is so divided. Everywhere we look, there is division. If the world looks at the church and sees division, do you think that it's going to have any footing or any chance to have a voice to that world? No, they're just going to see the same thing, right? So it's urgent that we live and walk in unity. And so a gospel-centered church is united in three things, in our calling, in our actions, and in our theology. So let's look at the first point. So a gospel-centered church is united in their calling. Now, what, what am I getting at when I say that? We have to break it down to the gospel, right? We have to see the world through the gospel. That's what the Bible compels us to do. And what does the gospel say? It says that we were all sinners, we were all dead in our sin, but Christ, in his mercy and his grace, has saved us by faith. Right? That's what we get at when we refer to the calling. It refers to our salvation that has united us together. No one in here has earned their salvation or has walked in such a way that they've de they, they deserve God's favor. No one. We were all dead. 
And not only were we dead, we were walking in sin. So Ephesians 2 just levels the playing field. It, we are all in need of the gospel. And when we begin to receive that, it transforms how we then deal not only with ourselves, but how we deal with others. And so this calling refers to our salvation that unites us together. Through Jesus, we are now alive and we are part of his body. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 uh, is a verse I have up here on the screen. It says, again, for you are saved by grace through faith. It's not of, from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So even in chapter 2, Paul was preparing us. Listen, not only have you been saved from something, you've been saved to something to walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to do. But this requires maturity. It requires maturity to fully realize the good works that God has created for us to walk in. Because does God need our good works? The answer to that would be no. Does God need our good works? No, he doesn't need them. But our neighbors do. Our family members do. Our children do. Our community does. They need our good works because through our good works and through our unity, the gospel is revealed to them, right? The church is to reveal the mystery of God and to magnify his glory in and through the church. So, so Paul doesn't actually command us here. He's actually just appealing to us. He's, he's going after our hearts. He says, I urge you, therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. New actions, though, can only come from a new heart, which is why Paul has prayed twice now that we would be strengthened within our hearts to not only know Jesus, but to be gripped by the gospel, to be gripped by the, the, the transforming power of what the gospel does so that we would grow then into being mature believers. In fact, this is what he's going to get at in verse 13 of chapter 4. So he says, uh, I urge you, therefore, to, to walk, right? Walk is going to be used five different times in these chapters. And what Paul is reminding us is you've been greatly resourced for this journey. You've been greatly resourced for this action that he is calling us to do. You have received every spiritual blessing in Christ, he says. Every spiritual blessing in Christ you have already received. You possess it now if you are a believer in him in order to walk worthy of a calling. And so you have a great privilege, but also a great responsibility. And therefore, he gives all these commands that follow. In fact, there's 39 different commands. And again, the first command here is just to walk worthy. But anytime Paul introduces a list, usually the first thing in that list is really the main thing, and all the rest of the things just describe that main thing. So as we go through these commands, this is all just what it means to walk worthy of the calling that we have received. This is why Paul prayed, again, that we would know the love of Christ, but also experience it, because none of these commands come naturally to us. When we have good doctrine, but we don't have good practice, really what it leads us to is just a cold orthodoxy. We just become cold. Not very friendly, not very loving. But if we have good practices but not good orthodoxy, it, it leads to chaos. It leads to air. Literally, we become like chaff that just floats in the wind. 
We need right doctrine, but we also need right actions. And so a gospel-centered church is united in their calling. Secondly, a gospel-centered church is united in their actions. We're united in our actions and how we live. Now, again, notice what he says about how we are to live. Again, he doesn't say, a gospel-centered church is one who sends out thousands of missionaries, and they are evangelists, and they are... No, he doesn't say that, even though that's important, and even though those are needed, and he's going to get to that in a few verses in a few weeks. He says, a gospel-centered church is a church that's marked by humility. It's marked by gentleness, by patience, by bearing with one another in love. Notice what he says there in verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So he calls us to humility. Now, in Ephesus, this was looked down upon. If you were humble in, Exodus, or in um, Ephesus, you were, you were an outcast, right? Pride is what everyone wanted. In fact, the Ephesians were just very proud people. You've probably met some of those people, right? You probably live with some of those people, right? Just very, it, it natu- pride comes naturally to us. Humility was looked down upon, but Paul's up urging us, be humble. Walk in humility. Why? Because God is calling us to a new community. Therefore, it's essential that believers display the characteristics that enhance the community. Few things are more destructive to community life than pride and arrogance, right? If you have a group of people together and you have all kinds of different prides going on, you're not going to have a unified group. You're going to have a divided group. Pride, really, it, it lurks behind all disunity and destruction. This is true of churches, but it's also true of your marriages. You want a marriage that's in shambles? Or you see a marriage that's in shambles? You see, a, uh, you see two people who have pride. Right? Because this is essentially, again, I'm, I'm moving forward here, but this is what Paul's going to say in chapters 5 and 6. He's going to say, look, marriage is the cross. It's the gospel. That's what the picture is. That means that two people have to deny themselves in order to lift up each other. And only when you do that will you actually do what you were created to do and walk in the purpose of what marriage is doing. So husband, you want, you have desires, that's great. Deny those desires. Lift up your wife. Wife, you have desires, those are great. Deny your desires, lift up your husband. And when you both deny yourself, guess what? And lift each other up, guess what? You, you both get what you want, just not the way you wanted it. But let me tell you, it's so much better. Why? Because it's denying. It's humility. It's not being self-centered. It's being other-centered. It's being like Christ. So the opposite of humility is, is pride. It's being self-centered. Now, the, the, the great American preacher Jonathan Edwards, he describes all kinds of different symptoms of, of pride and, and what they lead to. But two in particular, he says two symptoms of pride destroy churches. So two symptoms that, de- that destroy churches of pride. One is fault-finding, right? So pride causes us to filter out the evil that's within us, right? We become blind to our own failures and shortcomings, and instead it, we filter out our own failures, but we also filter out the goodness in others, and we just find fault in others. But the humble Christian has such a correct view of his own self that he's not 
concerned or busy with the thoughts of other hearts, right? He's not, he's not trying to be the Holy Spirit to other people, right? He's letting the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. But he himself is turning inside and having a correct view of himself. So two symptoms of pride. One, fault finding. Two, just a harsh spirit. Those who have pride in their hearts literally speak about other people's sins with contempt and judgment and frustration. But given Jesus' example, we should humble ourselves. Again, he says, he who has the first, who, he who is out sin, let them cast the first stone, right? And then what does he say? Gently to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. So we can never, therefore, humble ourselves too much. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Uh, he has a quote in Mere Christianity. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Again, don't get stuck in that trap. Let the Bible define who you are. Don't think of yourself too less or too much. But humility is not thinking less of yourself, but is thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. Now, here's a challenge for you. What is the first thing that you think about when you wake up? Typically, it's yourself, right? I got to go to the bathroom. I'm hungry. What do I look like? Am I late? What time is it? Right? So even when you start your day, immediately your first thought is self-centered thoughts. And that just then continues throughout the day, right? So I challenge you, when you wake up, your first thought should be at least someone else, but it should be Jesus, right? Thank you, God, for today. So on our own, we're just incredibly self-centered. And, and in that, we are like babies. Now, I love that West Wind has lots of babies, right? Uh, we have lots of little ones in the back. We have some here in, in our midst, right? They're just a beautiful picture of what spiritually most of us are, right? And I, and I said us, so not, not you, us, right? In fact, Paul, even when he's describing all these things that churches should be doing, he also describes himself struggling with, with these things, not arriving because no one ever arrives on this side of heaven. But when we talk about spiritual immaturity, a great picture is babies, right? In fact, the Bible says when we trust Jesus, we are born again. Literally, we become spiritual infants when we receive Jesus, but we're not to stay there. We're to grow in maturity. So how do you know if you're spiritually immature? Well, you're not discerning if you're spiritually immature. You're not discerning, right? Just like a baby doesn't know the difference between baby food and bad food, right? They don't know, right? If it's feeding time and you stick that spoon in there, they don't know the difference between vegetables and um, like pureed meat or whatever. I, I'm not, I haven't had a baby in eight years. I'm not sure what... Do we still give babies canned meat? Uh, or the gerbil or whatever? Not gerbil. Whatever. Yeah. Gerber. There you go. Yeah. Do we still feed them that? I mean, I don't, I don't know. But like, they don't know the difference, right? So like, you can surprise the baby. Like, open up. Here comes the airplane. And it could be anything, right? And they're going to be like, you know. And then even if they don't know that they shouldn't know it, like, like they, they shouldn't like it, sometimes they'll try to please you, right? Like there's a reel right now on social media, and it's a little girl. She takes food, and she's like, I like it. And she's like starts throwing up, you know, like gagging because she doesn't really like it. But she doesn't know, she doesn't know that, right? Because she's, she's a baby, right? But we're like that as well when we're not discerning. When we, we don't know between truth and right. And let me tell you, the world is just begging to make disciples, Politics, they're, they're begging to make disciples. 
Big companies, they're begging to make it. Everything that you experience in your day is some sort of discipleship. You just don't realize it. The question is not is if you're being discipled, it's of whom or of what are you being discipled of. You need discernment. Two, again, you're, you're incredibly self-centered. You're called to be humble and to be gentle. But instead, we're like babies. We're, we're incredibly self-centered. In fact, babies are the, the most self-centered people or persons in our church and in our world, right? Everything revolves around them, right? Uh, you have to train them that there's even other human beings around, right? And so we shouldn't be like babies, self-centered. We shouldn't always be getting our feelings hurt. We shouldn't always be thinking about ourselves or feeling that we've been wronged or conscious of how other people are looking at us. If things are never fair, if, if we can never admit that we're wrong, all that's revealing is just that we're spiritually immature. And so if we can't take criticism or if we're just concerned about our image to others, it's just revealing, look, we're, we're spiritually immature, we're babies, and we need to grow up. We need to be humble. Finally, if you're not steady, right? If we're tossed back and forth, if, you, if you're okay, if things are going great, but then when things go bad, you, you just kind of fall away. If you, if you just toss to and fro with the wind, we're not mature. Spiritual maturity, then, is when we, we love the Bible, when we love the Scriptures, when we're theologically wise and discerning. We can watch things on YouTube about um, uh, Halloween and not lose our religion, right? Never forget having a church member go to me and be like, Pastor, we should never celebrate Halloween. I'm like... Uh, why? Oh, I watched a YouTube video on it. Okay, <laughs> okay. right? We, sh we should be discerning. So you love the scriptures. You're wise, you're discerning. You're not, you're not self-centered. You're serving others. You're quick to admit when you're wrong. You're not always getting your, your feelings hurt. You show what's called forbearance. You're a person of steadiness. You follow through. You're faithful. You know how to handle suffering and how to endure. And so Paul acknowledges again that he's growing in these areas. And, and just studying this this week, and especially studying this this week on my own, right, with four kids at home and trying to homeschool them, I, I learned how short I am on these things, right? But we shouldn't also be shocked at the immaturity of others. Why are we shocked by the immaturity of others? Why are we shocked that the world lives in sinful ways? You know, when Paul is admonishing the Corinthians, he says, don't judge them. How do they even know better? Judge yourselves, because you should know better, because you've received the gospel. Sometimes we just get it backwards. But we shouldn't be shocked at the immaturity of others. Why? Because we understand this is a process and that we need each other. In order to grow. But also don't put up with your own spiritual immaturity. Don't, don't, don't give yourself a pass. If you're spiritually immature, grow. Grow up. That's what Hebrews is all about. It's a really a long sermon just imploring believers, grow up. Stop being babies and drinking milk. Take meat. And so he calls us to be humble. He also calls us to be gentle. Gentleness is another word is would be meekness, which is what Jesus uh, commands or, or expresses that blessed are the meek in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Some people have a natural just gentleness about them, but that's not really what he's getting at. This is supernatural gentleness. This is gentleness that James describes in James chapter 3. A wisdom that's from above is gentle. 
It's a fruit of the Spirit in order to be gentle. And when, when God commands us to do something, again, it's not natural of ourselves to be gentle. Because of our sin, we, when we get tested and, and tempted, we, just, we don't become gentle. In fact, most of the time we rage. But we're called to be gentle. And in our gentleness, we're, we're called to gently woo people to the gospel. Right? By being patient with them and gentle and kind with them. Literally saying, look, there is a better way that is out there. It is the Lord Jesus. But when we are harsh or needlessly assertive, we may win in arguments, but we won't win hearts. And we're called to win hearts. And gentleness honors people. And so the opposite is, is just hyper-aggressiveness. And, and the reason why we are hyper-aggressive with others is because, again, we feel superior to them. We've talked about that as well. We get impatient and harsh because we just think that we're superior than those people that we're dealing with. We get, um, in order to get, though, gentle with them, we have to see them as who they are. So I challenge you to do this. As you are going out from church today and you're driving, because you'll probably experience your first contact with someone outside of the church in a vehicle. They may be going slow in front of you or miss the turn signal or something like that. Right? But I want your first thought to be not that they're a bad driver, even though they probably are. Uh, I want your first thought to be this is a human being made in the image of God, and God loves his image so much, he himself became an image or became the image by sending his son, and he died to redeem us. Now, when you begin to think that about other people, it's really hard to then start judging them and being short with them and being harsh with them, right? Because you realize as you sin against them, who you're really sinning against is not them. It's the Lord who you claim to love and who you claim is inside of your hearts. And so instead of being harsh, we should be gentle. We should see the worth and value in others because they're the image of God. We should give people a living picture of Jesus Himself. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. This is one of my favorite passages recently that I've looked at in the past year because it describes literally the heart of Jesus. So I should have Matthew 11, 28 to 30 up there. There you go. Jesus says, and we've heard this before, but maybe not in this way. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Right? It can be tiresome to follow in his path, but he says, I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the only passage in Scripture, the entire Bible, in which Jesus describes what his heart is like. And what does he say his heart is like? It is lowly and humble, or is gentle and lowly. It's the same word translated there. You want to be like Jesus? You've got to be gentle. You've got to be lowly. That's the, the very essence of who he is. And if you're doing that, then the next one comes a little bit easier, right? Although, I, I, you know, I've even heard this as a joke, right? If you pray for patience, get ready because God will give it to you, right? He'll definitely give it to you if you're a parent, right? Uh, you have to learn patience uh, many, many times over. 
But he says patient, and we, we should be patient, right? It's another fruit of the Spirit. It's the opposite, though, of, of anger. Anger is bad, but it worsens to rage and to bitterness, which then further destroys unity. And so what is the antidote to rage and to anger? It's to act like our Father who is slow to anger, who is patient with us. In fact, he is so patient that in his patience and kindness, the gospel has been extended to us. And so our lack of patience then bears false witness to who our Father is. He is a God who is slow to anger, who is patient. So patience is a divine quality of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patience. Um, and you may, may feel like, listen, I, I just, I feel like I never do enough, right? I never do enough. I never do enough as a pastor. I never do enough as a husband. I never do enough as a father or as, as a friend or uh, as a son or brother. Definitely felt like that this week, having a friend pass away. Felt like I just hadn't done enough for him. But praise God, Jesus has done enough. And he calls us to follow him, right? And so that feeling of, I, I haven't done enough, that, that's okay to, to, to feel it. Just don't stay there, right? Let that urge you to then put on Christ. And so with, in every human relationship that Jesus ever had, he did enough. He loved his father enough. He loved us perfectly enough. And when I don't do enough in any relationship, I know that Jesus atones for my failures. Right? So I look to him. So then how can I be impatient with others if Christ is so patient with me? So I should be patient with others. He says, with patience. Then he says, bearing with one another in love Bearing with one another in love, right? We must have an attitude of love and tolerating the faults and differences and quirks and personalities that each one has. Literally, he says, put up with each other, right? So when, when Randy Sinson adopted these two girls, again, he had three biological children already at home. And of course, you know, in time, it just becomes difficult for five kids to, to manage and to live and to, to live in cohabitation, right? I mean, I, I can testify to that, right? It's just hard for five kids to live together. And his response to his biological was, look, you got to deal with it. Look, this has changed, right? These are now your sisters. It's reality. You got to deal with it, right? You have to bear with them in love. That's what Paul commands us to do. The Christian life is to bear with one another in love. Again, the only reason that we are saved is because God bore in his love towards us. He bears with us. So this is not mere just toleration. It is actually love. Love fuels all of these virtues. And in Paul, Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 that, that we would behold the love of Christ and that it would fuel, fuel our love for the unlovely. So instead of just hanging out with people who are exactly like you, I just urge you. Find someone who thinks completely different than you. Become their friend and love them. And even though you're different than them, let the gospel be what unites you so that when others see you together, they're like, it's strange you guys are hanging out. You guys voted differently. You work differently. You eat differently. What do you even have in common? And you can say, you know what's strange? There's something stranger. We both believe in a man that just rose from the dead, 
and that forgives us of our sins. And that keeps us unified together. Keep the unity. And so Paul prays that we would behold the love of Christ and that we would love others in such a way that we would bear with them. And when we don't, literally we're, we're missing the opportunity to obey the Lord and grow in our unity. Finally, he says there in verse 3, he says, be eager to maintain the unity. He says, making every effort to keep the unity, literally be eager of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And that word bond is the same word that is used to describe Paul. He's a prisoner. He's bound to change. He's saying we should be bound to the peace that we have through the gospel. He says, be eager to keep the unity. Why should we be eager to keep the unity? Because Satan has three devices that he uses to attack the church. It's always the same. It's one of these three. He either tries to deceive us through false teaching, he tries to divide us through disunity, or he tries to destroy us. It's always one of those three. And if we're not careful, he will deceive, divide, and destroy. That's just what he does. That's who he is. You see that in the book of Acts. As you walk through and the church is born, and then he tries to deceive them through Ananias and Sapphira, uh, trying to, to lie about their gifts. Then he tries to divide them over the, the treatment of, of widows. And then he just tries to destroy them as the gospel is advancing and the persecution rises. Right? That's how Satan operates. And so, but this unity is established through this bond of peace. So I have a couple of verses. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. A sister letter to Ephesians. Paul says, And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, let it rule your hearts and be thankful. That is how the peace we stay together through the bond of peace. That's how we keep unity. It doesn't mean that we excuse sin. You can lovingly call a brother and sister in Christ to repent and still be unified. It doesn't mean we excuse sin. We don't excuse abuse. We don't excuse mistreatment of powers. We don't excuse um, anything like that. But we do it in love in order to keep the bond of peace. All right? Because if we do something in truth, but not in love, we miss. If we do something in love, but not in the truth, we miss as well. So Paul says, let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Unity not only impacts our witness. Meaning if we're disunified, we, we, we lose our witness to the world. But it also sometimes just is our witness. Sometimes just the fact that we are unified as a church is enough to actually witness to the surrounding world around us. This is why Jesus prayed that we would be unified. So John chapter 17, verse 23. I think I have it on the screen for you. He says, I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be completely one, that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So unity is mentioned and commanded so much Again, because it's not natural to us. It's something we have to work for. It. And we should desire to work for it because our witness is at stake. But we don't try to be unified at the expense of truth. Right? Which is why Paul then is just going to break out and give this short little doctrine. It's not an official creed or anything like that, but it's just this short little explanation of doctrine that unifies us together. But you might be thinking, again, how is all this possible? How am I supposed to be humble? 
How am I supposed to be patient and gentle? How am I supposed to bear with other people who I don't even like? Right? How is any of this possible? Well, first of all, let's look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, and remind ourselves of what Paul was praying there at the end of the chapter. Remember, he's praying that literally the, the gospel would grip our hearts, but then he also reminds us not to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You can't do it on your own, but God through you can do more than you think. He can lead your heart to be more patient than you could ever imagine. He could lead your life to be more humble and selfless than you can ever imagine. The power is within you. You have it if you are a believer. If, you, if you're not a believer, it's compelling you. Believe. Trust Jesus, not your self because he is able you are not able you are not able in your own strength to be humble and patient and gentle and bearing with one another but through the gospel you are and so you can imagine going to a symphony right when a symphony is unified what happens you enjoy it right some of you i'm saying the word symphony your your eyes are looking at me like what right a symphony is where you have lots of different musical instruments right all kind of different ones, right? You have violins and basses and cellos and all kind of different uh, string instruments. And then you have horns and you have all kind of different saxophones and trombones and trumpets and clarinets and flutes and all that. And you have uh, percussion section. And all of that works together in unity. It's beautiful, right? But imagine if all those sections decided to do their own thing. If the drummer was like, I want to play punk metal right now right and then the, the strings were just like we want to play country and then the, the 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 all the horns were like well we want to play Scott right you you would literally start to shake right because all those music don't mix together and when they're not unified together it doesn't produce it doesn't produce joy it produces chaos same thing with the church. What we're going to get into over the next few weeks is that, look, we have unity because of what Jesus has done, but we also have diversity in who we are. And we need each other. Paul's going to describe us as, again, being the body. Not, not the body like Frankenstein, right? Where we just uh, take apart where we don't want and like add new things. No, where we organically grow into one body. So we have to be united in our actions. Finally, we have to be united in our theology. We'll go through these quicker. Again, uh, this is a short creed that Paul gets at here in verses 4 to 6. So again, the gospel-centered church is united in their theology. It's our final point. So he says, therefore, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So the motivation for our unity is one. The gospel is scandalous. In fact, all of these statements would have been scandalous in the ancient Near East. To say that there's only one God, that's scandalous, right? In fact, in our society, uh, we're becoming more religious, right? Because we realize if you have no religion, it just introduces chaos. But now it's just everyone has their own religion, right? And no one knows truth. No, that's not true. The Bible is true. The Bible is true, and it presents one faith, one God, one Lord, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one calling, one baptism, one Father, one. 
The gospel is scandalous, though. And so as we go through these confessional statements, again, we easily miss that they're radical statements. He says that we are one body. Literally, he's declaring that, that all these people from diverse backgrounds are now unified together in one. He's also declared that in chapter 2 when he described Jews and Gentiles, the, the hostility that existed between us has been destroyed through the cross. We're now one in one body. We're one temple. We're one kingdom working together, living together, being built up together. So, but division is caused when we have this spiritual amputation mentality, when we don't see each other as one, when we don't see each other as members of, of the body of Christ. So the local church is not the universal church in its entirety, but it is complete in its expression of what the church is called to be. We're a microcosm of what the universal church of all believers should be, right? So though the universal church is one body, it is in the local church that that is actually expressed and enhanced the importance of being unified. So we're one body. We're one spirit. When we have rival spirits, division is broken down. My fallen, broken spirit, if not wooed by the gospel and driven by the scriptures, will bring division. But believers are sealed with the Spirit. We have access to God through the Spirit. We are His dwelling place, and we are strengthened in our inner being through the Spirit. We have one Spirit. We have one hope. Again, division is caused when we have vying hopes that compete against each other, when we have our idea of what we want our church to be when it opposes what the Bible calls it to be. When people have hopes that are seated in the created order, they compete against each other. But when we center our hope on Jesus, who is our hope, he's our living hope, then we have unity. We have one Lord. Jesus is our Lord. But we have division when we have competing lords that are within our hearts. You have division when you have competing lords in your marriage or within your family. If Jesus is not your Lord, something else will be. And it will control you, and it will cause division. In fact, any time Joanne and I have friction, any time, when we finally break it down, it's because there's some other desire in our heart that's expressing itself as idolatry that's not been confessed or repented of. That's, that's what causes friction in a marriage. And if it causes friction in a marriage, it causes more friction in a church. John Calvin said at one time, your heart is like a spiritual factory of idols where you have other things that are good things that you make ultimate things that literally you have to constantly be repenting of. We have one hope. We have one Lord. We have one faith. Now, not just the subjective idea of faith or the act of a, of a believer, but the, the truths delivered to the saints. So Jude says it this way in Jude 3, because there's no chapters in Jude, so it's just Jude 3. Jude 3, he says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to, the content, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. So it is the gospel. We have one gospel. Not two gospels, not multiple gospels. One gospel. And these truths must be believed in order to have eternal life. So then division is caused when we introduce different rival narratives that go against the gospel. There is one faith, 
one narrative that keeps us together. We're not permitted to unite ourselves to false doctrines and false faiths, but to one faith. We have one baptism. When he talks about baptism, he's talking about the immersion into water, which is a picture of the gospel. So if you can just imagine with me a moment, if I have a tub of water right here and you to come up on stage and I were to hold you down in that water, what would happen? You drown. You die, right? What does the Bible say? The wages of sin is death. That's what that picture is. You're literally telling the world, I deserve to die. And so therefore, I'm going to be held underwater, right? In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, water is pictured as judgment, right? What, has happened, what happens when Noah is saved on the ark, right? Water comes and judges the earth. What's happening when uh, Israel goes through the Red Sea? The waters come back and judge Egypt and Pharaoh and his horsemen, right? So water is pictured as this thing of judgment, but it's also pictured as a, an image of cleansing, right? So I say, I, I deserve to die, right? And we put you under, but we don't leave you there before maybe a moment, and then we bring you out. And what's that picture of? Cleansing. Now, it's just a picture of it. It's, not, it's just regular water. It's, it's Iowa water, right? But it's a symbolic picture of, look, I'm raised to new life, cleansed from my sin because of what Jesus has done. We have one baptism that we identify with. When we identify ourselves with Jesus, we follow in his footsteps, and we're baptized. That's why he commands us to do it. If you haven't done that yet, find me, find Connor, find John. Let's talk about following in obedience to the Lord. That would be the next step you need to take with Jesus. But we have one baptism. Division then is caused when we're immersed into something else. When we become immersed into the culture over the scriptures, when we become immersed in politics over the scriptures, we have to be immersed in the gospel. That is what keeps us together. We have one baptism. We have one father. Division is caused when we have this orphan mentality, right? When we forget that we're adopted, when we forget that we have brothers and sisters, when we forget that he is imminent and relational, that he is supreme over all. And for those of us who embrace these truths, we remember we are family together. So the big idea this morning is real simple. We must strive. We have to work at it. We must strive to maintain unity in order to effectively witness to our community. We have to be unified if we want to witness to our community, right? So in, in order to do this, let's think about what we should do and what we have to take off, right? So we should take off self-centeredness. We should renounce it, right? And instead, we should walk in humility. We should renounce um, harshness and bitterness. And instead, we should walk in gentleness and kindness, we should <laughs> renounce the tyranny of our own agendas and our, and our own desires in order to walk in patience with others. We should renounce our idealistic expectation of others and instead walk in forbearance and in love with each other. We should renounce our indifference and passivity, and we should instead be eager to maintain unity through the gospel. I told you Paul was going to get all up in your business, right? And so walking out this morning and not being changed is just another sign that your faith is either non-existent or is immature, right? This should lead us to repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are one in you. And Lord, this is difficult. 
None of these things come naturally to us. But you remind us, God, so much through your word that where we are not able, you are able. You're far and exceedingly able to empower us and to equip us to walk in humility, to walk in gentleness and patience, showing kindness and forbearance and love to one another and, and eagerly maintaining unity. It's only through your gospel that we are unified. So Lord, point our eyes, lift our eyes from ourselves and lift them to Jesus. And God, for your sake and for your glory, would you help us to maintain the unity that you have already given us through the gospel? Would we walk and grow in maturity in order to bring about your witness to this community? God, not for our sake, but for your sake and for your kingdom. God, for your glory.